This is uh, Paul Steimer today on the 135th edition of Sports Untold Podcast, also on the Seattle-based Rainier Avenue Radio.world. My special guest today is Seattle Times sports reporter and columnist Larry Stone. Going to get back to you in a minute, Larry. My podcast is now on Spotify, YouTube, Amazon, Google, iTunes, Podbeam. You go to sportsuntoldpodcast.net. I encourage people to click the like button. Uh, my new producer is Olivia Coyne. Been friends with Olivia's family for a long time. She's doing a great job. UW student. Larry, I'm going to get back to you. Larry Stone's been a longtime reporter for the Seattle Times, beginning, I think, in about 1996. Larry is a graduate of Cal Berkeley. Uh, he was a former beat reporter for Seattle Mirrors. I think in about 2013, you became a full-time sports columnist, I believe, with the Times. I did, yeah. I was never actually the beat reporter for the Mariners, although I did a lot of Mariner coverage. But uh, I was, I was, my title was National Baseball Writer, and I, I filled in on the Mariners quite a bit, but never actually was the Mariner beat writer. Gotcha, gotcha. Uh, thanks for the clarification. Uh, Larry recently announced his retirement to Seattle Times, which has gotten a lot of publicity, and I've decided to get Larry on as he's still an active working uh, journalist and columnist at the Seattle Times. Uh, Larry, thank you for coming on the Sports Untold podcast, also on Rainier Avenue Radio. My pleasure. Great. Well, I've been wanting to get you on for a while. I'm glad we're finally doing it. I'm really glad, as I said a minute ago, to get you on before you officially retire. Larry, you've had a long career in sports journalism. Why don't you tell us how you got the bug? And why don't you also tell us what you think you would have done career-wise <laughs> if you did not become a sports journalist? Well, I've often thought about that. Uh, I I have no skills of, I can't fix anything. Uh, I'm not very uh, technical. Uh, I, I probably would have become a teacher, I think. But I went to Cal and, uh, you know, I played sports in high school. I had no real intention of becoming a sports writer. And my freshman year, I picked up the school paper, the Daily Californian, and there was a little ad that said, uh, we need uh, sports writers needed. So I thought, well, that Sounds like fun. So I went into the office and it just so happened that the, the guy who covered Cal baseball had come down with mono that week and they were desperate to have somebody to call cover Cal baseball. So sort of sight unseen, they sent me out to do a story on Cal baseball and they liked it and they assigned me that for the rest of the year. And then uh, uh, then I was hooked. I had the bug, as you said, and uh, became a staff writer my sophomore year, sports editor my junior and senior year and went from there. Kind of sounds a little bit like a guy named Lou Gehrig who stepped in one day and Wally Pimp couldn't play, right? You know? Exactly. Yeah, I'm not sure uh, what happened to the guy I replaced. I don't think he came back to the staff. Okay, we heard that term getting pipped, you know, so. Sure. Um, Larry, you mentioned you're a Cal Berkeley graduate, and uh, we hear a lot in the Northwest, all the thoughts on what UW and Washington State are doing with the whole conference shuffling. Give us sort of your thoughts on Berkeley um, headed to the ACC. Yeah, I I don't really like it. Uh, I don't think many Cal people that I know like it. I think it's better than the alternative, which was to sort of be, uh, I mean, I think there was even some fear that they would uh, de-emphasize sports completely and, and leave Division One. I. I think them and Stanford, that was one of the things that was bandied about. But uh you know, the, this whole splintering of conferences and heading ge to geographically illogical places. Uh, I don't like it. I understand it. I understand what, what the motivation is, but um, it just doesn't seem right to be, uh, you know, <laughs> we're a Pacific Coast school. To be headed to the Atlantic Coast Conference is illogical. And my, 
my, my prediction is that in about 10 years, everyone will realize that and, and all these conferences will be uh, reunited by geography. But for now, we'll have to live with it. Well, I had Keith Gilbertson on my show a couple of years before the pandemic. And Keith, as you know, is the University of Washington football coach. He coached, coached at Cal. Sure. And Larry, Keith said to me in so many words that coaching at Cal was just a whole different deal. He described it as being a pretty tough situation. Is that a bad way of describing the Cal football program? Well, I've talked to, I've actually talked to Keith about that myself. And yeah, he didn't have a great experience. I think he felt that it wasn't, uh, the football wasn't emphasized enough. Yeah. I mean, it's a, I think they, they have football in perspective. They have sports in perspective and, uh, you know, if that's your livelihood, you may not like that. But overall, I think it's probably a better, healthier attitude than win at all costs and that that sort of thing. And there's a lot to navigate there. You know, it's a, a there's a lot of constituencies at Cal. And so, um, you know, they've hit hard times now uh, athletically. I think they need to once again sort of have a reckoning about do they want to compete or do they not want to compete? And that's uh, probably an open question that, that doesn't have an easy answer. So um, I, I, I'm as a Cal grad, I think you have to be content with occasional, maybe once every 10 years, you have a great year. I mean, Gilby had a great one great year while he was there uh, and uh, sort of have fun with that when it happens. Can't forget Marshawn Lynch was there for sure. Yeah, yeah. You know, Larry, I was just reading um John Wilner's column. He he's a he's a Pac-12 reporter for the listeners, and he he's his columns frequently appear in the Seattle Times. I think he's based in San Jose, but any event, and he had a column about the UW president's explanation on what happened at Pac-12 negotiations. President Anne-Marie Cosse. Am I pronouncing her last name correctly? Cosse. Cosse. Uh President Kase claims that they never formally made, or she suggested they never, the universities never formally made, formally made a $50 million counteroffer per school to ESPN. What's your general take on the UW president's explanation about what happened? Well, you know, <laughs> I haven't read that column yet. I was wrapped up in the Mariners and uh, it was sort of consuming. And it's one I have uh, on my list to get back to. I, I apologize for that. I just know that this whole this whole the ending of this thing is sort of shrouded in mystery. And there's a lot of accusations back and forth about who was responsible. You know, Washington State's not happy uh in Oregon state they sort of i think blame washington and oregon for for reneging on uh you know uh, an understanding that they were going to give this a go so um you know I, i'm going to have to get back to you on that one because i'm not sure what she said at the at the moment fair enough fair enough it was a little I, as i read the column it was a little kind of unclear what exactly she yeah. was, she was saying but anyway i just wanted your perspective and at some point it'd be interesting to hear it um Larry, we're going to talk baseball and the Mariners today. I'm sure that's a big shock for you, but uh, <laughs> we're definitely going to hit on it. You're a longtime baseball. Um, yeah. So I read an article. A friend of mine actually pointed this out to me last night in the Mariners game. That in early 23, Forbes magazine states the Mariners lead all 30 Major League Baseball franchises. It's pretty amazing. An operating income and year-over-year value growth. Two interesting categories is this a sign the Mariners just need to step up and spend more on players? Well, I think a lot of fans certainly make that case. You know, it's a complicated question. You look at the two teams that spent the most this this past season were the Mets and the Padres. 
and they were both uh, they both have had disastrous seasons you know they have payrolls 300 million uh, or or approaching that and they neither of them have winning records or have been contenders all year so it's not just a matter of spending it's a matter of spending wisely the uh, but i think it's fair to to say that the Mariners need to step up more uh, this year. Come, they still, as we as we talk right now, they still have some life with three days left in the season, so they're in contention. But it's been, it hasn't been the the jumping off point from last season when they broke their playoff drought. And I think uh, the fact that they weren't very aggressive in the off season uh, may have something to do with that, or does have something to do with that. And I think you know Shohei Otani is going to be on the market. He'll be the most coveted free agents in a long uh, free agent in a long time. He's not going to pitch this year because he has an arm injury, but his bat is tremendous. I think the Mariners need to go all in on Shohei Ohtani and uh, a signing like that, which would be tremendously expensive. I think would would sort of stifle for a while the talk that the Mariners aren't willing to spend to compete. But that's the perception that people have, and in some ways, it's accurate. So you, you kind of see it as a as a fair perception. At the same time, you mentioned that spending doesn't necessarily mean you're going to win, though, either. So you have a nuanced view of it, kind of. Yeah, yeah. You just uh, a lot of the free agents that the people wanted that, that fans wanted the Mariners to go after have been busts. Two years ago, uh, Chris Bryant, Trevor Story, neither one of them have have done much. But on the other hand, you know. Uh, you need talent to win and you got to pay for talent. And in Seattle, you have to overpay for talent probably because where we're located, the travel, the ballpark, if you're, if you're a slugger, you don't want to come to play in the Marine layer here and watch your stats probably uh, uh, go down. So um, it, 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 and a good example is, is Marcus Semyon, uh, who's a star with the, uh, with the Rangers who they uh, the Rangers signed him to I think a seven year deal that the Mariners weren't willing to go to seven years, but he would have been a perfect player for Seattle. You know, at some point you got to just you got to make a deal like that, and uh, and it, it, maybe it'll be bad at the end of the contract, but in the short term, it, it, it's a kind of player you need to bring. Larry, let, let me ask you. So, of the pro Seattle sports franchises, we'll include the late Sonics in this in this question. Tell me if I'm off base. It seems to me the Mariners have trouble, have more trouble attracting other free agents. I don't remember this. I don't really remember the Seahawks or the Sonics. I guess the Kraken now attracting free agents, <laughs> the Sounders, that matter. Is it? Is this more of a Mariners issue than a? Well, you know, the Mariners. You you look back. They've I mean, they signed Robinson Cano, who was uh, the number one free agent on the market that year because they paid him a tremendous amount of money. They got Robbie Ray. So they have attracted over the, over the years, Richie Sexton got a huge contract. Adrian Beltre got a huge contract. So, you know, when, when they're willing to pay that kind of money, they, they attract free agents. But I think there's a, uh, it's a, it's just tough because it baseball is unique in the, in the fact that, uh, there's far more travel than there is in the other sports. So I think that's a factor. And I think that the uh, it, it, attracting offensive talent is hard because I think players think that it's not a, a hitter friendly ballpark. And, um, you you know, if you have a choice between Seattle and Texas where you can, where, where the weather's nice and you can rake 
you know, and build up stats, you're going to, a lot of times you're going to pick Texas. So that's why I said the Mariners in, in, probably have to overpay in a lot of cases, which is what they did with Cano. All good points. Larry, I want to talk about it today, a little journey on your career and, and some interesting moments you've had in your career. What was the toughest column you think you ever wrote? Maybe it was because you were critical of someone you liked, or there was just some awkwardness writing the column. What do you think is the toughest column you've ever written? Uh, let's see. Well, um, when the Mariners, uh, Mariners, the Seahawks drafted, now his name escapes me. Uh, he, he went to Can- uh, Frank, um, oh boy. Frank Clark. Frank Clark, yeah. And he had some domestic violence in, uh, incidents. And they drafted him and and I thought they shouldn't have drafted him because what was hanging over him. And I wrote a pretty harsh column that day about that. Um, and it, but, you know, in this job, you have to do that every once in a while. Earlier this year, I wrote that this was the most that it seemed like this was the most hated Mariners team by fans. Uh, that I'd ever seen because they were underachieving at the time I wrote it, they were under 500, you know, coming off the playoff year and, and people were mad at the team and, and the, the Mariners, you know, yeah, I don't think they liked that column very much. Um, so, you know, it's when you have to, you have to sort of jab them a little bit. Uh, you know, I tried to be fair and, and built up and built up tr- trust and, and, you know, pe- people know that, I don't, I'm not a, a cheap shot artist, I think, and I'm not a hit man. So when I am critical, I think maybe it it's uh, accepted a little bit more because I don't play that card every day. There's some columnists who just, uh, you know, fire this and fire him, fire him. And, uh, you know, I, I'm not that guy. I read your Mariners column earlier this year, Larry, and I got to tell you, it, uh, I think you were onto something, but it, it kind of hit me like, gosh, this seems driving me crazy. <laughs> yeah. And then, of course, yeah. what happened, they turned around and had their best month ever <laughs> right after right. I read that. Right. So, you know, that always happens, it seems like. Whatever you, you you write something, then something happens to 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 counter that. But now they're back um, with a bad September. So it kind of evens yeah. out. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I was listening. Where you've been, you've been working in the sports media field for so many decades. Uh, what's the toughest interview you ever did? Uh, toughest interview. Well, I covered Barry Bonds with the uh, Giants. I was the beat writer for, for six years. And, uh, uh, you know, he, <laughs> he was tough on a daily basis just to, uh, be, well, what was tough about him was you never knew what you were going to get. Cause he could be charming and approachable one day and then surly and, uh, and mean spirited the next. So that, you know, you, you almost prefer somebody just to say, I ain't, I'm not talking or, you know, you know what you're going to get, but when you, when you don't know uh, that, that could be um, a a real challenge. And, um, you know, I can't, I can't think of any that are like, like notably combative interviews that I've had. Uh, You know, most players, they know the they understand the game and and they're and they're and and they they know how to play it and they know that's part of the the gig and and you know you might not always get an engaged person but it's it's rarely hostile what was the most fulfilling um call me ever wrote Ooh, uh you know um i've written a, a lot of columns about people who are battling uh illnesses or uh, uh you know i did one on dave grosby the the Graz, uh who who is uh you know he's got uh he's got a condition that he's 
MS that he's uh, that he's fighting, and and that was a very fulfilling col- column. Uh, it uh, got a lot of great response, and um, you know, I I like it when I can when I could do a column that's uh, somebody that's maybe not uh, a superstar athlete, but but has a human story, and those are the kinds that I like to do. I've had Dave Grosman on the show, great guy, and your uh, colleague Steve Kelly gave a similar answer. He's enjoyed writing columns about kind of non-sports people or less known people that have had impacts on, on, on people. Right. Lives. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, uh, can, can I interrupt? Uh, I said MS. He has Parkinson's. Uh, yeah, Dave, Parkinson's. Right. right, right, right. Yeah, Parkinson's. When Dave was on in December 2019, we talked about his diagnosis. and Yeah. We, we, we want, I like to bring up some healthcare awareness uh, subjects on, on my pod. Larry, I've asked these two questions about every guest since, uh, I don't know, around <laughs> late 2019. Uh, who's a living sports figure you would really enjoy chatting with or interviewing? And who's a deceased sports figure in history you would have enjoyed uh, interviewing or chatting with? Yeah. Well, living, it's that's pretty easy for me. My idol, my sports hero was Sandy Koufax, uh, Dodger pitcher in the 60s. I grew up in LA in the 60s. Um, and he still sort of has a larger than life aura about him and he doesn't do many <laughs> interviews. So I don't think I'll ever get to do that, but I'd love to talk to Sandy, uh, who's getting up there in years. I think he's about 88 now. Looks, looks like he's about 68. He's in tremendous shape, but, uh, he's the one that I would, I would pick, uh, living and, um, uh, Jackie Robinson, I think, uh, deceased, um, you know, I've read a lot of books about his, his journey and his struggle and, but I'd love to talk to him about it in, in person. Those two aforementioned are very high on my list of a living and deceased sports figure. I'd love to chat with, uh, let me mention about Sandy Koufax. Oh, I'm going to throw a plug for a podcast. I've been listening to a very fascinating podcast this week called, um, Jews sports in America. And there's mm-hmm. been a lot about Koufax on it. It's very interesting. It's very yeah but assimilation and it's, yeah. a, it's a great podcast. Uh, I think her name is Meredith Scheller, who is at CNN and has been involved in some networks as the okay. host. Yeah, I'll check it out. And also there's a the uh, a book uh, by Jane Levy that came out about five years ago, a biography of Sandy. He didn't, par- he didn't participate, but he cooperated and uh, it's called uh, lefty's legacy. I think it's in Koufax and tremendous insight into Sandy and great untold stories about his career and his life. I've read the book. And I had Jane on my show a couple of years ago. She's terrific. Yeah. Oh yeah. Great. She's terrific. Yeah. Love, love to have her back. Uh, Larry, you have been in a sports journalist for so long. Who's a living sports journalist. You'd love to <laughs> chat with or interview and who's a deceased figure in sports journalism. You'd love to spend time with well, I'll start with the latter. Jim Jim Murray uh, was a legendary columnist at the L.A. Times, which was my paper growing up. And but I think he transcended the L.A. Times. I think most sports writers of, of at least of my age uh, revere Jim Murray and consider him to be the best there ever was. And uh, he sort of he he pretty much popularized the style of writing that still exists to this day with kind of wisecracks and one liners and things like that. No one had really done that before him. Uh, so I think he'd probably be the the deceased one um, living. Uh, it, you know, Joe, Joe Posnanski is a great writer. Uh, you know, I've 
friendly with him. So it's I, I do have access to him. I could do that, and I will at one at some point. But I think he's about as good as there is right now. Uh, tremendous style, stylist, and and uh, is amazingly prolific. But um, I, I think Joe would be the guy. I am very slowly reading Joe's book on the baseball top 100, but halfway done with it. It's a great book. Yeah. Yeah. I've got that too. Great book. All right. One more. Uh, who's a living figure in the, in the business side of sports you love to spend time with and who's a deceased figure in the business side of sports you would love to have interviewed or spent time with? Well, maybe uh, Walter O'Malley, uh, <laughs> the former Dodger owner who moved the team from Brooklyn to, to Los Angeles just to get the the inside story of of, uh, of how that happened uh, on the business side. And uh, current, maybe um, uh, the the owner of the uh, Oakland A's, you know, I lived in Oakland for 10 years when I when I lived in uh, when I worked in San Francisco for the examiner and they're uprooting that team and moving him, which I think is shameful. And I, I think this guy hasn't done an, an interview in the, the entire time he's owned the team. So uh, I'd, I'd love to grill him a little bit on uh, why, you know, why this is happening and why they've allowed this team, which is really a important part of the fabric of Oakland to just, just, just shamefully, disintegrate into you know an embarrassment to baseball right now real shame real shame uh real quickly favorite sports movie and favorite sports book uh sports book would be uh ball four ball four by jim bouton kind of <laughs> a seminal book in my my life as it you know, came out i think i was a 12 years old or 13 years old and it just uh Opened my eyes to a whole nother side of baseball that, that your heroes are not quite as heroic as you as you think they are. Um, and what was the other one? Movie, yeah, favorite sports movie, sports movie, uh, League of Their Own. I think, uh, you know, that's one I keep coming back to and watching a lot. Uh, just the 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 humor and the pathos and the acting and the 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 writing, it all is 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 really brilliant, I think. I read Ball Four, and it's been described as the catcher of her eye of baseball books. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So with that. All right. Um, you are an Edgar Martinez biographer, mm -hmm. and uh, you have written a lot about Edgar. And I think we can call you an, an Edgar Martinez expert witness. Uh, if there was to be an expert witness at Edgar Martinez, you would be one of them. Uh, I hear he's a, obviously a great player. Seems like a very affable guy. What are some things that you find interesting about Edgar that maybe the average fan doesn't know about this Hall of Fame player? Well, his life himself it was very interesting as I delved into the book. Yeah, he, uh, uh, he, he grew up in this town called Dorado, um, in Puerto Rico and his parents split up and they wanted him to move to New York and uh, with his grandparents. And um, he flat out <laughs> refused. He was like a young kid, eight or nine years old. And he went up on the roof when it was time to leave and they couldn't find him. And uh, he basically sta stayed with his uh, grandparents in Dorado rather than go to New York. And uh, just that sort of single-mindedness sort of permeated through his whole career when he didn't sign until late uh he was 20 20 years old when he signed most prospects 
from from Latin countries and other countries if they sign when they're 16 or 17. But and then he hit like 170 in Bellingham in his first year and thought he was going to get released. He just persevered. And, uh, uh, you know, one of the great privileges of my entire career was when he went into the Hall of Fame, he allowed me to be in the hotel suite. The family went to New York uh to uh because it was, it was daughter's birthday and they wanted to take her to a broadway play and it just happened to be the day that they announced the hall of fame and there was also going to be if he made it there was going to be a, a press conference in new york so it made sense for them so anyway i flew to new york and i was in his hotel suite and it was just me his wife his kids um one a mariner employee and, and a close family friend and his brother and waited out the phone call to see if it would come and when the i was there when he got the call that he had made the hall of fame and um in typical edgar fashion he you know you'd think he'd be shrieking and uh you know dancing around but he he you know when he took that phone call it was almost like he he had called room service to ask uh, where his hamburger was because he was so you know so matter of fact about it but the family did the you know there was a lot of shrieking from the family and but it was just just to be there at that incredibly important moment in his life was uh something i'll never forget in my life and uh, well that access you had to edgar is just, just incredible yeah yeah and uh the, and then i went to his in, Induction ceremony as well in Cooperstown, and that was a great thrill. And thanks for sharing a little more about him. I didn't know that he got signed at 20 years old. I didn't know. I know he didn't really start till he's about 27 as a major league player, right? Yeah, he was stuck behind uh, Jim Presley and Darnell Coles. He kept he was tear it up in um, AAA at, at Calgary, but uh, never got his chance until late when there were some injuries, and uh, and he just took off. Um. I want to go back to the base. Well, actually, I'm going to go more in the Baseball Hall of Fame. And I got I got kind of a tougher question, two questions for the Baseball Hall of Fame. And I want to get your perspective. So I had on a couple of years ago the famous attorney, Alan Dershowitz. And I had him on because he's he was involved in the Kurt Flood case. And he's actually written about sports law. And he's been involved in some sports law cases. Controversial, interesting guy. And Dershowitz has two thoughts here. I want to get your take on them. He feels very strongly that Kurt Schilling is getting wrongfully blackballed by the Baseball Writers Association, not getting the Hall of Fame. Dershowitz says he does not agree with Schilling's politics, but he feels that Schilling's getting um, wrongfully blackballed. Second thing Dershowitz says, he feels that they should abolish the, the character criteria for the Baseball Hall of Fame. He feels that it's just resulting in all sorts of subjective criteria getting in the way of good players not getting in. What do you think of Dershowitz, Dershowitz's two points? One on on showing not getting in, and two on his thoughts that the character requirement should be thrown out. Well, I voted for Schilling. Uh, I don't like his politics either, but I voted for him every every year he was on the ballot. Um, you know, he's he's not a slam dunk Hall of Famer. I think there could be cases made for, uh, for and against him beyond what you think of him personally. Um, it, but I do think it probably cost him some votes for sure. Um, and but at the end, I think he would have made it. He, he almost certainly would have made it his last year, but he. But he asked the writers to, in the next to the last year when he came close, he said, I, I, I'm not interested. I don't want to be voted in. Don't vote for me, basically. And so he he didn't make it. And he's going to go to the uh, 
veterans committee and we'll see what happens there he still has another route to the to the hall of fame uh the character issue is a is a the the character clause i guess it's a it's a dicey one you, it, with the steroids it, it doesn't matter character clause or not uh what 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 is complicating the hall of fame vote is is steroids and and guys like barry bonds and alex rodriguez who uh who have Hall of Fame stats and are not getting not getting voted in, and I think whether you know, you you have a character clause, voters are still going to decide whether they feel like people who they believe juiced up should be in the Hall of Fame. So I think that's still going to come down to a personal decision, and uh, you know it's a tough thing. I voted for Barry Bonds because uh, I felt that. There were a lot of players who used steroids that we didn't know about. It, 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 it was there was no rule at the time banning players from using specifically from using steroids, which is why I don't vote for Alex Rodriguez, because they codified that with a drug policy in 2004. And he violated that twice after that. So I think there's a distinction. And I'm not the only one who makes that distinction between Bonds and Clemens. Pre. Uh, uh, pre that when that happened and and uh like Manny Ramirez and Alex Rodriguez who violated it after it became the the law of the land so to speak so um any voting you know, people say that baseball writers shouldn't vote but any voting body that you have is going to have the same dilemma and when Barry Bonds was on the veterans committee ballot this year he didn't he voted by not by the writers but by other players and baseball executives he did he got a lower percentage than he did from from us the BBWAA so uh it's just a sticky situation that that I don't think any voting rules are going to solve it's just it comes down to you know what you believe as far as uh peds and and whether players you accused or perceived of using them should be in the hall of fame now if a lot of these players transgressions are playing a role in why they're not getting in you mentioned a whole bunch of them and um you know i recognize too shell i don't agree showing's politics either he said a lot of over the top stuff but if these guys are are, are being kept out should a guy like Ty Cobb be kept in? <laughs> yeah, that's a that, that's always the example that that is, that is used. Uh, I mean, I don't think you start kicking people out of the Hall of Fame. Uh, you, you know, you have the the gatekeepers who decide who who goes in, and uh, I mean, I'm I don't know how you could litigate uh, Ty Cobb's hundred years after the fact, but. Um, it, it's it's a great privilege to be a hall of fame voter but it's also uh it could be a major headache because you have to grapple with these kind of questions every year the distinctions you're making on the steroids is interesting that how you as a writer have evaluated it that uh you know looking at some of the rodriguez's situation say versus bonds and those are interesting distinctions all right um i'm going to mention a bunch of players who are not in the hall of fame we have the controversial ones like pete rose and barry bonds roger clemens a rod uh feel free to comment on those but what's your take on some other good players who are not in like steve garvey keith hernandez the late dick allen um bob mattingly don mattingly just just comment on some of those who are not in the hall of fame whether you think they should be in 
yeah uh some of those were almost uh, were before i was eligible to vote so i never really had a vote on them i mean there's there's a tremendous number of players who fall in that gray area where you could go either way you know hank aaron ken griffey jr willie mays those are easy votes you know, you know, even though they weren't unanimous, they, they they were close and they should have been unanimous. But it's the ones like uh, Steve Garvey and, and Dick Allen who give you 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 toss and turnover because you can have uh, arguments for and arguments against. I I would have voted if, if I never had a chance to vote for Dick Allen, but I've studied his um, resume and I think he's a I think he's a Hall of Famer. Uh, that's why they have the veterans committee as well. It's when you're, a, when you're on the ballot, the BBWA ballot, you have, you're on for 10 years. It used to be 15 years, but they lowered it to 10 years. And if you're not voted in after 10 years, then you can go to, you have a second Avenue to get in, which is the veterans committee, which is a group of, I think 16. So instead of having a 500 group a 500 member body vote on you it's a much smaller group and i think you need 75 percent of that um so you have a second avenue a lot of players have gotten in through through that means and you know those guys you mentioned they've had many chances again to to get in beyond the baseball writers and still haven't gotten in so uh i think that shows that they are borderline candidates and um you know, a, a, a lot of them, like Mattingly, he had a very short, uh, he had a tremendous uh, peak, but it was a, it was a brief peak. So that, and same with Dale Murphy, another guy that, you know, uh, I would, I think I'd like to see Dale Murphy get in two time MVP, but his peak was, was short. And that's what's I think has kept, kept him out uh, of the hall of fame. So um and the, the other thing is that there's there's a lot of new ways of evaluating players that were not there when uh, when guys like Garvey and uh, Allen played. It, it was it was batting average, home runs, and RBIs. Now now with sabermetrics analytics, we have the capability of looking far deeper into a player. That helped that helped Edgar. You know his stats on the surface weren't that great, but when you dug into them, and you know on base percentage is much more. Um, important now than it was than it used to be and his his was over 400 which is elite so things like that uh you know sometimes you take a new fresh look at a guy and he's better than you than you think he is and uh, uh th that helped burt blylevin get into the hall of fame it took him i think 14 of the 15 years before he got in so uh sometimes that's why they have that, that's why you're on the ballot for a long time so that uh you know people could take your career can can be evaluated in different ways at different times and edgar got in on the last time he was on the ballot right the 10th time 10th and final time yep yeah amazing amazing well you got time for a few more questions larry sure good good larry you know I, i'm kind of a hall of fame junkie the, the rock and roll <laughs> hall of fame interests me too i i just i, I like hall of fame talk and, and you're a hall it's it's fun to have a hall of fame voter on on my show mm -hmm. um Jack Sigma was inducted in the Basketball Hall of Fame a couple of years ago. And tell me, Larry, if you agree with this, would you agree that the Seattle sports media and the media in general could have given Jack Sigma's Hall of Fame 
induction a little more attention like compared to eggers jack sigma got like maybe one percent of the attention egger got yeah. when he got the basketball fan what did the media underreport jack sigma's accomplishment of getting into the, the basketball fan huh i don't remember uh maybe the fact that i don't remember uh how, how the coverage was might might say something um i don't know i just think i think there's a there's a aura to the baseball hall of fame that 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 maybe the NBA the uh, the basketball Hall of Fame doesn't have just because it's uh, it's been around longer. Uh, I think it resonates more. Um, but uh, you know, perhaps it was underplayed. I I don't really have a strong f- feeling on that. Uh, I think it got a lot of play at the time. Um, you know, if uh, Marshawn when goes in, I think he'll get a tremendous amount of uh, publicity for that. Um, so, uh, I think Jack Sickman in general is a player who was underappreciated in, in his career, but I guess he wasn't too underappreciated since he's in the hall of fame. Maybe, maybe if we had an NBA team in Seattle, the story would have got more attention to So Yeah. Yeah. There's that. Uh, by the way, speaking of Marshawn and, and, and Russell Wilson, do you think they will be hall of famers one day in, in Canton? I think Marshawn will, uh, you know, if you'd asked me that two years, I would have thought that. Russell was a slam dunk, no questions asked. Uh, there's an interesting school of thought now that he may be playing his way out of the Hall of Fame with his second act of his career in Denver, which has been nothing short of a disaster for him. Uh, you know, he had a terrible year his first year. The team tanked. They changed coaches, uh, brought in Sean Payton, who was supposed to resurrect Russell, but they're they're winless. They, he's it seems it seems to not be meshing with with Payton. There's a lot of speculation that he may not even last the season as the as a starting quarterback. So uh, I still think he'll make the Hall of Fame, but I don't think it's as the the certainty that it was. If he if his career kind of fizzles out and and he doesn't uh have a have a turnaround i i think it may be a little more dicey for him than we than we ever thought right another basketball hall of fame question robert horry has seven rings he was called yeah. mr june but wasn't a great regular season player does robert horry have a basketball hall of fame case <laughs> i can't say that i've uh and that i'm as uh well versed on the on the nba the whole time i've been the columnist here they've we haven't had a team so i haven't covered it much uh but there are you know you get rings how responsible is he for those rings was he on the right team at the right time uh you know players with there's a few players with michael jordan who got rings who really didn't contribute that much uh so um yeah i'm 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 not sure if he's a Hall of Famer or not. I I, I can't say that I've studied Robert Ory's uh, stats or career that closely to to really wage <laughs> put down an opinion on that. Fair enough. I asked Lenny Wilkins that question. He said Horry should be on the Hall of Fame. I asked Eldridge Kasner. He said no. And uh, <laughs> I, I I said to Eldridge, well, I guess I guess uh, Robert could have a best supporting actor argument. And Eldridge goes, well, he definitely wasn't the lead actor, you know. So. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of my thinking too. Yeah, yeah. From yeah. What, I, what I know of his career uh soda arena is it dead or on life support uh probably close to dead <laughs> yeah i mean uh you have the beautiful arena now uh, at the at the seattle center and i think they're going to get basketball soon uh, i'm not sure what the need for a soda arena would be at that point 
is Gino the the Seahawks quarterback for most of the rest of the 2020s? Uh, I wouldn't. When we're only in 2023. I don't think so. <laughs> Maybe to the mid 2020s. You know, he's 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 already in his 30s. Fair so enough. I think he's got uh, three or four years probably in that role. But um, uh, I don't think he'll make it through the entire 2020s. Will the NBA be back in Seattle by the end of the decade? Yes, I think it will. I think it's heading in that direction. Uh, it looks like once they get that Vegas arena done, they're going to ex- they're going to expand, and it, all signs point to Seattle being the other team coming in. They have everything they need the the history, and now they've got the arena. They have the ownership, uh, or at least the he. It seems like they are have the capacity to have the ownership. The Lightwickies are, are tremendously well connected in the NBA circles. I think it's going to happen. Larry, you you've uh, certainly written about basketball, football, and baseball. Uh, do you enjoy covering sports like soccer and hockey and some other uh, other sports? I do. Yeah, I, you know, I had never really done it much until I became the columnist, but uh, I I really enjoyed covering soccer. I covered them, the Sounders in two, uh, you know, MLS cups in Toronto, one they won and one they lost, uh, really got into that. Um, it really enjoyed the, the, the Stanley cup playoff run last year, traveled to, to, to Dallas and, um, I mean, excuse me, to Denver. Uh, and, uh, so, yeah, uh, I mean, over the years, I've covered just about I've covered just about everything, horse racing and boxing, and you know, I don't think there's a sport that at some point in forty four years that I've done this that I haven't covered. But uh, the more regular basis of covering the Sounders and the Kraken was was a blast. Yeah, what a uh, what a great career you've had. It's I mean, so many sports fans are envious of your career. You gonna miss it? Gonna miss traveling with the teams and all that? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, you know, I'm. I, I want the Mariners to make the playoffs, not as a not as very selfishly, because I want one more run of covering postseason baseball, which is what I love the most. Uh, you know, I did that for years and years and years before newspapers kind of started uh, uh, ramping down on uh, on covering things like that that would that didn't involve your teams but for a lot of years i'd cover the world series and the lcs whether my team was in it or not and i love covering postseason baseball just the excitement so uh and last year when the mariners finally made it after 20 years of not making the playoffs and i went to um toronto and then houston uh with with our group ryan divish and adam jude just had a tremendous time covering that and i was looking forward to doing that one final time before i retire in november so uh we'll see what happens they're one game out as we speak so they have to make up a game in the next three days (laughs) and i don't know if i'm going to toronto or uh, not excuse me tampa bay or minneapolis or nowhere gosh i want to make the playoffs so bad uh, well, Larry, this may be my last question or two. Uh, what does the future hold for Larry Stone after you retire from Seattle Times? Are you going to be going to games as a casual fan now? I, I'm sure I will. I don't think I'll be able to stay away. Uh, you know, you mentioned that you that you uh, interviewed Steve Kelly, who I actually replaced as the Seattle Times columnist, right. great friend of mine. Right. But he's at everything. <laughs> you don't. He's at storm games. He's at. Uh, 
Sounder games. He's at Seahawk games, Mariner games, Husky games. You know, he's, he's a, he's a junkie. He's a sports junkie and can't stay away. I don't know if I'll be there as often as he has been in his retirement, but I, I, I will, if nothing else, then to see the guys, the, 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 the guys and ladies that have become my friends in sports writing. And, uh, um, but I don't have any grand plans right now, just to kind of relax and figure things out. You know, I'd love to do a book project, another book. I figured if I wrote the, Ed, I wrote the Edgar book while, while I had a full-time 40 hour a week or more job, I figured without a job, writing a book might be a little easier than, uh, if I didn't have a, an actual full-time job to, to worry about as well. So, uh, I, I think I'll do a book project at some point, but for love it. At, at the it. beginning, at the beginning, I'm just going to relax and let the stress kind of uh, evaporate from me. Well, I, by the way, I took Steve Kelly to a Husky game last year, so I, I'm an eyewitness. He has gone to a Husky football games. So <laughs> I've seen him in many press boxes, uh, many times at the Husky press box. So I can vouch yeah. for that too. Well, Larry, what a great career you've had! It's just so much fun to get you on and um, having. I, like I told you a couple times, this interview started. I want to get you on before you retired and. Have yeah. some reflections about your career. And thank you so much for coming on the Sports Untold podcast. My pleasure, Paul. Thank you for having me. You too, Larry. You take care. All the best to you. Thanks, Paul. You too.